Hi, you're listening to Power to the People, a weekly show about social justice on Lexington Community Radio, produced in collaboration with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, the Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition, the Kentucky Workers League, and the Central Kentucky Chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice. This week, you're with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, or KFTC. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. We are Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and this is our vision. We are working for a day when Kentuckians and all people enjoy a better quality of life. When the lives of people and communities matter before profits. When our communities have good jobs that support our families without doing damage to the water, air, and land. When companies and the wealthy pay their share of taxes and can't buy elections. When all people have health care, shelter, food, education, and other basic needs. When children are listened to and valued. When discrimination is wiped out of our laws, habits, and hearts. And when the voices of ordinary people are heard and respected in our democracy. Night 2016, what a crazy campaign this has been. Bitter, ugly, always unpredictable. The debates, the rallies, the ads and attacks, they're all done now. Our whole team is here all through the night as the votes are counted and the first states are in, so let's get right to it. The polls have now closed in six states with 60 electoral votes, and ABC News can project that Donald Trump has won the state of Kentucky. That was a state won by Bill Clinton twice, 1992 and 1996, Republican ever since then. Donald Trump the winner tonight. Up in uh, Vermont. Wave country, though, Kentucky votes. Republicans have taken back the House for the first time since 1920, and this is a huge story. Hey, Scott, you know, already a lot of talk in this room about whether or not what happened here in Kentucky sort of reflects what's going on around the nation right now. The Republicans are going to win a supermajority in the House here in Kentucky. Then the icing on the cake, the ousting of House Speaker Greg Stumbo, Governor Matt Bevin's old nemesis, and when it is 11.30 in the East, and as we look at Democracy Plaza, NBC News projecting that Donald Trump is the apparent winner in Florida. They're chanting USA, USA, USA. They really feel like Donald Trump has a very good chance of winning. People just standing shell-shocked. The mood is quite somber. You can sense it. It's fairly quiet here. This is anything but a victory party. Those faces at the Clinton headquarters say it all. She needs a miracle. It's been a long campaign. So obviously, since our last episode, we had an election. Um, In the past two weeks, a lot has been said about what happened. But at Power to the People, we think it's really important to just check in with you. So today we're doing something a little different. I'm Maria Stark, one of the three main producers of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth's contribution to Power to the People. And I'm here in the studio today with my co-producers, Macy Gould and Meredith Wadlington. Hi. Hello. And we just wanted to take a little bit of time out. We're a week past the election. Our last episode aired on November 1st. 1st. November 1st. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the election. 
And we just wanted to take a moment and do something a little bit different and just sit down and have a conversation with each other about what was everybody feeling last week and where are we now and and where do we go from here? I'm going to just kind of pose a question to you guys and take it away whoever wants to. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, our central Kentucky chapter, uh, like many chapters, had election results watch parties on Tuesday night of last week. And ours was held at West 6th's Green Room downtown, uh, hosted in part by one of our producers, Meredith Wadlington. Hey. Yes. And she also worked as an electoral organizer throughout the election season. So has probably a specific perspective on what the results meant to her. Uh, And so we all were there, you know, (laughs) trying to get through this, this election's results party. But while also kind of maintaining some feeling of community um, mm-hmm. as things maybe didn't go the way that we had hoped. So what were your all's feelings on that night? And, and tell me, what were you guys, what was going through your mind that night at the election watch party? When we were there, we being Maria and myself, we were there really as state elections were coming in uh, mm-hmm. throughout, throughout right. Kentucky. At that point, you know, we didn't really know what to expect on a national level. But I think that especially pushing the importance of these local elections in the the episode prior and really, you know, trying to get people excited about these um, local and state races if they weren't super excited about the national election. It felt like when things were coming back, I guess maybe what we weren't expecting or maybe what a lot of people considered not great news. It was hard to accept, but at the same time, we're a statewide organization and we're used to, you know, fighting fights at the state level and the local level. And so I feel like throughout the majority of that night when I was there at the watch party, um, because we went home a little bit earlier than a lot of folks did, I didn't feel quite as, I guess, helpless as I did the next morning just because we're used to making making those fights at a state level and we didn't really know what the national climate was going to be like. Yeah, it's um, it was really interesting watching the uh, state results and the congressional results come in just because there was so much hype. And that was be- that was in the point in the night before, really, as Macy said, we knew what was going to, you know, how the presidential election was going to turn out. There was so much hype around the presidential election. And Maria, as you said, had done a lot of work on two uh, more local campaigns. One was uh, a state rep campaign for the State House of Representatives in Kentucky. One of them was for a congressional race for the House of Representatives in Congress. And um, putting so much work into those and thinking that, you know, there might be a positive outcome, there might be a negative outcome in both of those or one. You know, that's something I knew going into the election. Last month on the show, we interviewed Silas Wilder, and we'll hear more of his interview uh, today on the show. He talked a lot about how he feels genuinely, and progressives do have a seat at the table in Kentucky, and that we're starting to make an impact. And that this election was going to be very interesting to see that outcome. And that, I think that's still true, but um, it definitely didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, as we watched the state and local stuff roll in, um, the entire Kentucky House flipped. Um, right. For the first time since, what, the 1920s? Or? Yeah. It's what they say, nearly a century that so, we haven't had a Republican supermajority in the Kentucky legislature in our house. Of representatives, where where our legislature was fairly divided for a really long time, and, and we we still have had a history of Democratic governors, so it, it wasn't always so cut and dry. But I think that was a big bummer for me, right? Especially considering um, 
just the past year we've had at um, Central Kentucky KFTC. Mm-hmm. We've, um, you know, experienced the, you know, striking down of the minimum wage ordinance and, and um, you know, health care being um, dismantled, um, Connect being dismantled by Governor Bevin. And what was the other? Voting rights. Oh, my gosh. And the voting rights um, executive order yeah. issued by Governor Bashir that was um, struck, ba- struck down by Governor Bevin. Just we've some just wins and seen, then some... Yeah, yeah. Some, some pretty emotional setbacks. And to sort of think of those in the context of the election was just really heavy. And yeah, a lot of folks who have been in those fights and organizers and members um, kind of just seeing those results come in. It was a little heartbreaking because it's not just, oh gosh, we're Democrats and we want a bunch of Democrats in the House. Right. But it was like, these are real issues that we've been fighting for for a long time. Yeah, that are bigger than just this candidate for this office. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, we just started this new power pack, which gave us the opportunity to endorse candidates and support them in a different way than we have in the past. And one of the candidates that we had endorsed was Nancy Jo Kemper. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Jo Kemper was would have represented the Lexington area right. in Congress. And so when we were it was kind of a bummer. So we pulled in, we got a parking spot near the green room <laughs> and right on the radio they're calling the election and they're saying we're taking it to andy Barr for his victory speech it was really quick it was really really fast and it felt like wait what you know (laughs) it felt like i'm gonna get out of the car and i'm still gonna walk in there i'm gonna see my friends and i'm gonna see the other people who did work on this election Mm -hmm. and this particular candidacy i'm gonna show up for them but it it felt like i don't even know what to say it kind of felt like a punch in the gut because elections are very i'm a very anxious person and so i get really high stress during those times. And I mean, part of the appeal of going to, you know, this watch party is that you're going to be with people Mm, who, you know, are rooting for the same things as you and you know, have worked really hard. And, you know, you just want to be with your friends when you get that kind of thing. And Mm so we tried so hard to kind of avoid that. And then, right, you know, avoid that information and to get it right before we walked in. I was kind of like, I kind of wanted to get that news in certain company not just sitting in my car before I walked in right something that was good and it felt like it was hard to kind of balance in context but that we did see some victories for the folks that we wanted to have in office the one of the candidates that you worked on Meredith Mm. actually did make it in Kelly Kelly Flood Flood. um, and Mackenzie Cantrell that's right who's a KFTC member out in Louisville and it's a really tight race it was a very tight race and of course we knew Attica Scott who was already an elect because she ran uncontested Um, the first woman of color in the state house in like 16 years or something or a long time yeah a long mm-hmm. time so you know it wasn't like we left decimated per se but mm. it felt like this is a different climate that we are working in now than we are than we were working in the other day i went to bed thinking we had a different president i, I totally, don't know why because I'm, i told her <laughs> i know macy warned me but i was like i d- was living in this naive bubble yeah. where donald trump as president was not right. an option right. and well, i didn't go i didn't go to sleep really really yeah. ready to acknowledge that yeah, at the watch party, there was um, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of folks chatting, um, you know, people paying attention to the TV, um, but a, a lot of chatter. And um, there was a point in the evening where that all just sort of stopped. And there were some tears, and there was a lot of silence, and there was a lot of watching the computer, watching the TV, 
sort of sitting in silence together. And, you know, we left at midnight. And I went to a friend's house uh, who was there. A couple of us went and we uh, to play cards and decided to not look at the results. We just played cards. And sometimes that's what you have to do. I think for me, the, the, the next week was kind of a hills and valleys. What was that next week like for you guys, if you'll just say a couple words about that? I think there are two things. I mean, mostly I was really angry, in in particular the state. I mean, the country, obviously, the folks who are doing this, but thinking, why did these people vote this way? Why did so many people not think that this was a reality? Like, why was this so unexpected for so many people? Mm Mm-hmm just not wanting to be around any person who I think could have contributed to this happening, (laughs) just kind of wanting to avoid. But the one other major thing that has kind of, I guess, haunted me throughout this week is how do I speak to my family, Um, specifically family members who I know voted for Donald Trump. And I don't know how to address that. I, I just don't know how to address that with family members or people that I consider myself close to. I don't I can't think about speaking on good terms with somebody who I think is the fundamental opposite of everything I believe. (laughs) Right. And so it's been really difficult. Even up until this point, a large part of my coping has just been avoidance (laughs) of a lot of a lot of people and a lot of conversations. Right. Of course, like I went through the couple days after like really upset. I didn't want to get out of bed much. I was late to work. Didn't want to connect with people. One thing that's been really interesting to me is seeing uh, just on social media, um, the conversation we're having about empathy and folks saying, you know, kind of kind of like uncovering the fact that like you're not allowed to tell people not to be hurt right. by someone. And, and just sort of like seeing what that collective grieving process is uh, as a, a very social, you know, United States now. There's a sketch on SNL this past week where um, there was a line where one of the guys said, you know, there was, it was a sketch about uh, an election night watch party, and one of them said, I know y'all got a big day of uh, writing Facebook statuses tomorrow. And it was true, because I saw, That's you know, real. little novellas. Yeah. Um, right. There was lots of that, and I think everyone just sort of, like, you know, vomited their feelings on a social media, because it's like, what? where else do we go? Right. Like, what other outlet do we have? And then folks responding to that and saying, like, you know, just um, chin up and, um, you know chill out, get through it. And like us sort of coming to this understanding that like, you don't get to decide for someone else, like how they're going to process, how they're going to grieve. Yeah. I didn't go to work until late that next day. I didn't want to get out of bed. All I felt like I could do was scroll and just see these statuses Mm. after statuses, article share after article share. And some of them I really needed to hear. I needed to see, I needed to read them and I needed to put myself in a different frame of mind because I was in that anger zone for a long time. And just maybe kind of just like almost feeling catastrophic where I was just was like just where you get in a cry and you just oh and now I think of this other thing and I'm crying more right. now and I'm just now I'm just in a ball and I and I'm supposed to go to work and do something productive right. heck no no way but one thing that I really did like was I found like something that I felt like really good I could read and I was just like I'm going to share this with some close people and say guys I think this is going to be not necessarily okay, but there is a place we can move to from here. We're still in motion and we can do something about this. And if there is anything that I took away from the social media was that people were grieving, but I could see that over the hill, once they made over the hill, they were going to be ready to be organized. Right. People were ready to say, 
we messed up. We we didn't see this coming, but what do we have to do now? We have to build solidarity with each other. Angela Davis, the famous Black Panther, Black feminist, spoke at UofL. And one thing she said, um, this is the time when we have to become allies with the people who voted for Trump because the policies that they suffered under, we also suffered under. Right. And we have to figure out a way to move forward. And one quote from uh, an organizer in Louisville was, this is the time where we can either turn away from each other or turn to each other. I think it was turn to each other oh, or turn, turn against, against each, each other. other. Thank you. That's way more turn powerful. Turn to each other or turn against each other. Turn, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I think that there was a natural sense to turn against each other in the moment when we're saying oh, the Democrats messed up here or the liberals did this or the third party voters did this, this and that and that. And that like that kind of division stuff does not help us build collective power to me. How do we organize people where they are? And even if where they were was accepting that this person was anti-establishment, but that was enough to get them to vote for this person. How do we move from there? Right. So what do you think this looks like for us on a state level? Where do we go from here? And what do you think the next year, two years, three years look Mm. like? Yeah, well, I know that I brought up the Celis interview, which again, we'll hear today. And um, I was listening to it today and I was just like, gosh, on the one hand, it seems so um, hopeful that um, progressives in Kentucky had a voice. And then I started to think like, but that's, I don't even know if that's true. And the more I think about it, the more I think it absolutely is. Kentucky didn't, I mean, of course, it was the first state called in the presidential election. Right. But um, one thing that Sellers mentions a lot is like extending our reach to Eastern Kentucky and finding those folks in Eastern Kentucky who are engaged in their towns and finding, you know, the folks out in Western Kentucky who want to see a better, um, more progressive Kentucky. And 2017 is a, you know, political dead year. If there's no elections, um, our session is pretty tiny. At the legislative at, yeah, at, in the state house, and um, I think it's a really exciting time to be organizing in Kentucky. I think that, you know, we issued a statement as a chapter before the election saying, whatever the outcome, Wednesday we're going to wake up and we'll still be here. We're still going to be here organizing, and that's true. We've got a lot ahead of us in 2017, and I think it is great that there's a lot of momentum to do that work. We have folks, you know, look checking us out and looking us up who had previously maybe never been interested and I think that's good momentum to use I think 2017 is going to be really exciting and then 2018 you know we have a midterm election so we have our work cut out for us we're going to take a short break but when we come back we'll hear from KFTC members Austin Gaffney and Celis Wilder stay with us Hi, I'm Adam. I'm from the Madison County chapter of KFTC. Are you looking for ways to get involved and raise your voice for the rights and needs of all Kentuckians? Join Kentuckians for the Commonwealth during our fall membership drive. Visit kftc.org join to become a member by contributing any amount. Help us become 11,000 members strong as we work to build a more just Kentucky for all. It takes just a few minutes to add your voice to our growing movement. Join today at kftc.org. Thanks. Welcome back to Power to the People on Lexington Community Radio. 
I'm your host, Meredith Wadlington, with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. And if you're just joining us, today we're talking about post-election feelings and post-election strategy. It's now been three weeks since the election. So at this point, we're definitely starting to look forward to what's ahead. I wish that we had held more seats, but I understand that this is the the back and forth of things. I, I hope that like this transition just encourages us more to swing back towards a side that is not necessarily democratic, but just more pro-issues that affect Kentuckians. Mm-hmm socially and economically and politically and that we think more about like the concrete things of what affects us and not just like the broad ideas of our politics. This is Austin Gaffney. Now in her late 20s, she's been a KFTC member since she was in college. Austin was one of the dozens of KFTC members who, like many of you, watched the results roll in that night at a watch party surrounded by like-minded people. And even so, emotions were high. Here's us chatting on election night. So it's about 11.40 central time right now. The race looks super close. Recently, we thought we were in uh, a clear Trump victory, and now it's looking a little closer. What are your, uh, what are your thoughts right now? Um, right now, I'm feeling really mad. I feel like America has made a choice to vote for a male candidate over a, fe- over a highly qualified female candidate, and that is, like I think, what upsets me the most. A lot of Austin's feelings really resonated with me, but what really struck me about our conversation was this. To me, Hillary was not the best candidate if you want to think of America as a different country from what it is, as like an anti-imperialist country, which it is not. But for me, she was the best candidate for like our reality. And so it is really upsetting to me that like our our best option isn't isn't good enough for America. The right choice for our reality. This really gets at a fundamental conversation people all over the country have been having in the weeks since the election. How do we work within the system we have now? And to what extent is something else possible? I caught up with Austin last week to ask about what this looks like. Here's what she had to say. You said that Hillary was the best candidate for our reality. Uh-huh. Can you elaborate on what you think our reality is? Yeah, I feel like we live in a two-party system that relies on representative democracy. And so maybe if we lived in a socialist reality or a more progressive democracy, then there would be better choices than Hillary Clinton. But I feel like Hillary Clinton has worked her whole life within the system that we gave her um, as part people who are part of our democracy and she did the best she could within that system it sounds like you have a lot ahead of you in (laughs) this uh next non-election year yeah i'm gonna volunteer a lot (laughs) try and be nice to my neighbors it's true that a lot of folks feel energized right now or motivated to get involved at our monthly chapter meeting at kfdc just a week after the election we could hardly fit everyone in the room so many people just showed up asking, what can I do? Kentucky Workers League, which is an organization that partners with us for a power to the people, says their number of dues-paying members has literally doubled since the election. It seems clear that the next few years are going to require a lot of work on the ground, but also a lot of deep self-reflection about our political goals and tendencies. So 
With that in mind, looking ahead, we bring you the largely unedited version of our conversation with Celis Wilder, filmmaker, rising politician, campaigner, dream dreamer in central Kentucky. So I think it's, um, the story of its genesis is that uh, when Adam Edelin lost his re-election bid for state auditor, uh, and when Matt Jones was considering a run for a congressional seat here in the 6th District against Andy Barr, they both kind of had a revelation that the... um, there just wasn't a good infrastructure in place uh, to help elect progressives around Kentucky. That that isn't really the function of the KDP, um, and that uh, just on an organizational level, that progressives needed some kind of vehicle, um, you know, an organizational structure that could help uh, carry candidates um, outside of the kind of traditional um, party system. And, and I think part of what actually sparked their interest was uh, a lesson learned from Mitch McConnell, oddly enough, who, uh, when he was a county judge considering a run for state office, for statewide office, he recognized that the Kentucky Republican Party at the time just didn't have the bandwidth or the infrastructure needed to carry him across the line. And so he dedicated a good chunk of time before even running for Senate to actually kind of rebuilding, you know, the, the Republican Party into, into something that was better organized and spread out through lots of counties and was working on things like candidate recruitment, et cetera. So he built an organization that, for better or for worse, and I think it was for worse, frankly, because I don't care for a lot of McConnell's policies, but I will credit him um, politically for recognizing that he needed to build, uh, like I said, this kind of political infrastructure before he could be successful and, and achieve his political goals. And there's kind of been a little bit of a void on, of that, um, on the, certainly on the progressive side. And I think lots of uh, progressives in Kentucky, and it has actually been a really exciting year in lots of ways, I think, for progressives in Kentucky. Because I, for lots of reasons, I, I think that a lot of us are, are kind of finally feeling like we have a, a collective voice in Kentucky, like we're a significant enough um, constituent block and movement uh, within Kentucky politics that um, uh, that we're finally kind of being taken seriously and, and, and finding seats at the table. Um, because, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you that in, in Kentucky over the years, we have a tendency, I think lots of progressives have felt discouraged with Kentucky politics over the years because we tend to keep seeing candidates who compete with Republicans uh, to see who can be the most conservative and who can bash the president the most and embrace big industry the most, et cetera. And we don't really get uh, candidates looking out, you know, who represent our, our voice or our values. And, and the, real, the real problem, I think, with this idea that everybody competes so you can be the most conservative, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with conservative principles. I mean, some of them are really legitimate. You know, balanced budgets are great. <laughs> like, not passing along debt is great. Um, but when 
you know, there's a whole breadth of political ideologies. And uh, when everybody's competing to just cater to one particular point of view, that leaves lots of other voices unrepresented in the discussion and uh, and feeling like they don't have a voice or a say in their um, political system and their elected leaders. I think that's one reason turnout's uh, been so relatively low uh, around here is because lots of people feel like there aren't candidates that are speaking for them. And so I think part of the idea behind the new Kentucky Project um, is candidate recruitment um, as well as building a kind of organization across the state, you know, so that we can find, um, just so that we can find candidates who can represent, you know, these segments of the population who traditionally don't have a voice in politics. And I think the hope and the idea is that um, you build a large enough coalition and a lot of these candidates can actually achieve electoral victory as well. Um, And of course, there's a, there's a lot to be said for running for office and for elevating issues and for pushing points of view and for changing conversations, et cetera. But nothing gets the job done quite like winning the election. Uh, and you need large coalitions to do that. So the idea is that we need to reach out to folks in every county in Kentucky, kind of uh, find people who aren't represented by our normal political system, kind of pull them into the tent, um, see where a lot of the common ground is and, and push for that. To my mind, that's an inherently progressive idea anyway, this idea that you kind of try to give a voice to, you know, the masses and channel that in a constructive way. And uh, certainly the, the, most of the folks at the table are, are pretty dyed-in-the-wool progressive. That said, no, there's not, a, there's not a desire to shut out other points of view. And I think there's plenty of place in some counties in Kentucky, for example. Um, I think those of us who are just dyed-in-the-wool progressives, uh, like me, uh, you know, I, I can accept the idea that we've certainly got counties in Kentucky where we're not going to elect a Democrat, never mind a, you know, <laughs> never mind like a strong progressive Democrat, uh, but where there is something to be said for, you know, finding and supporting a, a more moderate uh, candidate who kind of, um, you know, can counter a more extreme candidate and who can, uh, we can at least work with on, on a number of things. I mean, that's, politics is, is rarely a winner-take-all sport. You know, it requires lots of compromise and the ability to work with, uh, with other folks. And um, I, I think there's certainly room within the New Kentucky Project for, uh, um, for folks who don't necessarily fit easily into one political mold or another. We try to be a little more open and, and broad than, than just narrowly pigeonholing ourselves. Yeah, it, it's really interesting that um, if you just sort of do some basic online research about what the project is, it, it doesn't really have any very clear political leaning, um, mostly just the, the thesis that I get, or the goal is just to like have new people in office. And, and to the extent that it's formless, I, I think that's a little bit by design. I mean, because like I said, the idea isn't for, the idea was never for like Adam Edelin and Matt Jones to come in and say, you know, these are the things we think need to happen. We're going to organize a whole bunch of people to do what we say. Um, it's more about uh, trying to give people a voice. And, and that always requires a little bit of faith. You know, that that's going to result in something constructive and positive, and that can take a little bit of channeling and guidance, of course. Would you say uh, at this point, this sort of coalition uh, is largely in, like, Lexington, Louisville, or do you guys reach much into East? Oh, no, the the idea, I mean, in part, I think it was inspired by Howard Dean's 50-state strategy. So, um, you know, national politics, particularly on the presidential level, gets so wrapped up in the electoral college, and so there was a tendency more and more to only compete in a handful of swing states. And there was this idea that, uh, that that's not healthy for the system across the board. I mean, one great example of that, actually, when you look at our, this congressional district, when uh, you know, Obama lost Kentucky two years in a row, 
um, and didn't really compete in Kentucky and lost by like 15 points. And it's easy to understand why the Obama campaign chose not to compete in Kentucky because they were clearly never going to win it. There were swing states in play. Why divert resources away from Ohio, you know, towards a state you can't win? Uh, but there were other Democrats down ballot in closer races. And so that was the year that uh, Ben Chandler um, lost his reelection bid uh, to Andy Barr and, but in, a, in a relatively close race. And I think there's a, there's a general sense that if the national campaign had actually played in Kentucky, had actually you know, committed some resources and tried, and if Obama had lost by 10 points instead of 15, that that would have made a big difference for the down ballot races and that we would have uh, more Democratic candidates in office. And that trickles all the way down to the state house level. I mean, the, the down ballot effect can't really be overstated. You know, the, the impact of the national election on everything that happens down to dog catcher is pretty significant. And so um, when Howard Dean, uh, after uh, his unsuccessful presidential run, kind of uh, took over as the head of the DNC, um, he adopted, a, you know, very purposefully a strategy that said, no, from now on, we are going to compete in all 50 states. Um, you know, win or lose, there's no way to grow our base, there's no way to grow our coalition, there's no way to win some of these states 20 years from now if we're not competing there today. And uh, that's the idea, that's very much the idea behind the New Kentucky Project, is actually go out, work on candidate recruitment in all 120 Kentucky counties, you know, even the places where, where you wouldn't normally expect progressives to, to try to compete. Because there's, I mean, nothing's cut and dried, and there's plenty of folks across the entire state that resonate with this message. And even if it's not enough to carry an electoral majority in a given county, there's still something to be said for giving them a voice. And when you can empower them and pull them together, then um, that can certainly have a cumulative impact on the statewide elections. Um, when you say that part of the strategy is candidate recruitment, yeah. what does that look like right now? And, and do you have a sense of what that might look like in the future? Is it workshops? Is it um, programs? Is it, or is it just sort of like networking and kind of feeling out who has potential power? That's a great question, whether or not we do it by way of, of workshops and these kind of open house things or whether, I mean, you kind of, I think you, frankly, I think you have to do both. A workshop or something like that is kind of like casting a net mm -hmm. and you hope you catch what you catch, which is, which is great and legitimate. Um, but uh, you know, if you actually want to want to find somebody in every every single county, I think you know you had to be a little proactive and, and try to get out there and headhunt a little bit. We're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Celis about where the new Kentucky project is headed next and how to build a progressive coalition outside of Lexington and Louisville. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Tanya from the Letcher Chapter of the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Stay up to date with our episodes of Power to the People by subscribing to the show on iTunes. Find the show by searching KFTC in iTunes or on your podcast app. It just takes a few minutes, and then you'll be the first to know when we update a new episode. Thanks so much. Welcome back. You're listening to Power to the People on Lexington Community Radio. If you're just joining us today, we're breaking down this big question. Where do we go from here after the election? To figure this all out, we've been talking with Seldis Wilder, mostly about this big new idea called the New Kentucky Project, and also about his run for Senate this spring. So let's get right to it. 
so if um, if the New Kentucky Project is not actively fielding candidates uh, in this election, how is the New Kentucky Project relevant in this election? Well, so it, it's not going to have a direct impact in this in this election. So in that sense, you could say that the NKP isn't relevant to this election. But you could but you could also say that I think this election is very relevant uh, to the NKP because we're seeing an electoral cycle where lots of people are really unhappy with their choices. Um, there's a whole lot of just kind of nastiness and negativity in the political discussion and a lot of the campaigning on every level. I mean, seems to be based more on, on tearing our opponents down than actually trying to talk about ideas and solutions. Um, so I think that this election is really indicative of the kind of climate we're trying to get away from. A lot of people are really feeling almost a painful need for things to be different. So I think I think this I think a lot of people after this election are going to be really hungry for something different, regardless of how things play out across the board. Um, so after uh, my recent Senate run, Bernie Sanders appointed me to the National Platform Committee that helped set the National Party platform for the Democratic Party prior to the National Convention in Philadelphia. You know, I'd say us Sanders delegates were 70 out of maybe 150 uh, folks. So we were in the we were in the minority. You know, within the kind of basically within the legislative body that was setting the, the party platform. And yet, I'd say we still got maybe three quarters of what we were, we were fighting for, if not more. And, it w- and, the, and the fact that we were able to get so much of what we were looking for, whether or not it came to criminal justice reform, uh, environmental protections, um, expanding the statute of limitations on white-collar crimes, um, campaign finance reform. I mean, we got lots of really, really great stuff into the platform. And I, and I think the fact that we were able to get uh, as many concessions as we did was a real testament to the fact that the folks on the other side of the table recognized that our coalition is really necessary, that they really need you know, this, this kind of uh, burgeoned progressive movement to like stick with the party, to stay with the party, that they need to address our issues if they want to keep the, the coalition strong. Um, and that was really affirming. And I've even, on a smaller level, have found uh, that to even be the case here in Kentucky. Uh, that I, I think that the the state party that a lot of a lot of leaders across the board are recognizing that there is a progressive movement in Kentucky, that there's a lot of votes and almost more importantly a lot of activism within it. These aren't just people who show up and, and pull the right lever. These are folks who actually get out and knock on doors and make phone calls and get engaged and won't shut up on Facebook and you know it's the whole it's these are the people you really want in your corner and um, I think we've made our presence known well enough over the uh, over the course of the last year in lots of different ways that the folks across the board are recognizing that, that we're a valuable component to a coalition. And you introduced the plank in the platform, I guess, uh, about mountaintop removal mining. Is that right? That's right. Can you talk the, a little bit about that? Until uh, we can acknowledge the reality of the situation, which is that the fracking boom and reduced demand from China and new coal seams out west, et cetera, have all contributed to the inevitable decline of that industry, uh, then we're not going to start finding new economic opportunities for these families that really deserve them because they have sacrificed everything, not just their land and their health, but even literally their lives to power our entire state and our entire nation's economy. And they've got nothing left to show for it now. They've been hung out to dry. Um, and we do owe them a debt, and we're not going to pay that debt until we can acknowledge the reality of the situation. You know, those are, these are the communities that are at the center of mountaintop removal. Um, across the board have lower life expectancies than, than um, you know, any of their other peers, even on, even on socioeconomic levels. And so uh, and on, the, at the, on the platform committee, um, I was 
privilege to be able to introduce an amendment along with Sabrina and along with um, a gentleman from California who, uh, with the Green Latino Caucus who actually drafted the language that stated the party's opposition to harmful and dangerous extraction. I'm trying to think of the exact language. We're opposed to threats to the public health of our communities from harmful and dangerous extraction practices like mountaintop removal mining operations. Um, that passed unanimously. It passed uh, by a voice vote there and was included in the platform, which is, the, you know, for the first time ever. And as somebody who's, you know, been a, a member of KFTC for years and has, been, and has seen how hard people have worked on this issue, I'm really proud that I got to play, you know, that role mm-hmm. and, and moving it forward on a national level. And I'm not sure, I, and frankly, I'm not sure that I would have been in that position if it hadn't been for KFTC's support. Uh, and, and my Senate race, you know, because I was really validating to, uh, to other groups, to national groups and figures uh, like Ashley Judd, et cetera. And I think it had a lot to do with uh, the Sanders campaign's comfort with me as a surrogate. Uh, and so, uh, and it certainly had a lot to do with the relative success and viability of that campaign. Um, so thank you for helping <laughs> put me in that position. Uh, well, I had nothing to do with it, well, but on behalf of the organization, you're welcome. So, um, so speaking of your Senate campaign, can you, for those who aren't familiar, set set the scene for what uh, that climate was like at the time and what you were facing going into that uh, race? Um, so I, I, su- I surprised myself a little bit by getting into the race because uh, I'm, I'm not a stranger to electoral politics, but only on the local level. Um, I used to serve as a city commissioner and mayor pro tem of Frankfurt, but even that was a a number of years ago now uh, when I was in my uh, mid to late 20s. Um, And we got some really great things done in local office, uh, but it was also, and and this was in Frankfurt, the state capital, so that gave me a pretty good grip on statewide politics and to to an extent national politics um, and what those campaigns look like. But, you know, I just have a compulsion to um, try to make the world a better place. And a lot of the time that boils down to trying to convince other people to see things a certain way. I don't really know any other way to do it other than convince everybody else, you know, that that X, Y, or Z needs to happen. Um, You know, because it's only through collective action that we actually get anything done. Uh, No individual is going to go out there and, like, do anything to change the world except for convince lots of other people that (laughs) the world needs changing. and my preferred avenue for that has actually been film production. Um, and so I had, I had just finished a documentary called The End of the Line uh, that uh, documented the grassroots defeat of the bluegrass pipeline here in Kentucky that other communities that are fighting their own pipelines around the country are using um, to kind of rally the troops and raise awareness and had been touring that, that movie around um, and was really feeling the value of entering those conversations on a national level and in these other states and in these other areas and, and was really feeling the power of a message to actually affect change. Um, and especially as other communities defeated their pipelines and started crediting the movie with, with showing them how to do it and helping them do it. And so my initial thought was simply, well, if nobody else is going to get on to that debate stage, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can beat them or not, but I'll you know, I'll step up and get onto that debate stage. I can give them a piece of my mind. I think I could even win some of these debates and maybe change the trajectory of some of these conversations. Um, and that idea actually ended up getting really exciting. And uh, and so even to the point where when a major candidate did get into the race at the last minute, Jim Gray, of course, the mayor of Lexington, who I already knew a little bit, but who I've gotten to know much better over the course of the campaign and who I, I like quite a lot and who I have a lot of respect for. Um, but even when he chose to get into the campaign as a self-funding 
you know, multimillionaire candidate who I, I was never going to outraise. I mean, the, the chances mm -hmm. of, of actually getting past him were really <clears throat> slim, but it still seemed important to get into the race basically for, for two reasons. Um, one was to push some of the policy positions that I felt like needed to be discussed. Like have it, it's like start try to start an honest conversation about coal. You know, win or lose, if we can at least acknowledge the reality of that situation and kind of get the right debate started, which is what are we going to do to help these communities, as opposed to this fake debate over who can best fight the war on coal. It um, seemed that the sooner we could actually get some people uh, some help. So I, I wanted to get out there and just be an advocate for a lot of these positions, in part, again, because uh, I know that lots of people feel this way and don't have anybody speaking for them, you know, on these stages. So it seemed at the very least I would get on there, make that case, be a voice uh, for the folks who don't normally have that. Uh, but then I also wanted to make a broader kind of meta point to the Kentucky Democratic Party and to progressives across Kentucky, which is that... Um, this competition that we keep having with Republicans to see who can be the most conservative and who can embrace big industry the most and all of that. Not only do we keep losing that contest every single time, but we actually make the problem worse when we do that because we reinforce that set of values. We send this message around the entire state that those are the only values that matter. And then more progressive sets of ideas just kind of wither on the vine. And it seemed really important uh, to point out that not only uh, do we make the problem worse for ourselves as Democrats and as progressives when we when we play that game, but we keep losing elections as a result, and that we would actually um, benefit politically from leaning into our Democratic base, from running as proud Democrats, from actually shoring up our base and driving up turnout, uh, rather than just trying to, to steal conservative votes from the other side. You know, that there's, I wanted to demonstrate that there's actually a coalition here that, like, mm -hmm. that could engage for the party that hasn't been feeling the party. And that hasn't been engaging, but that's, you know, that's there if they can just be activated and fired up and inspired by the right message. I've heard people talk about your Senate campaign as, as being unprecedented, which is um, a big word to say, <laughs> but also, yeah, really sad. Um, and I was, I was a little concerned, you know, getting into the race because I knew that winning was such a long shot, um, you know, because I, I was concerned that if I didn't, you know, at least come in second out of seven. Um, that if I didn't uh, have a strong showing, that that would <clears throat> potentially kind of validate uh, that criticism of progressive ideas. Like, see, we told you you can't say this mm -hmm. stuff and compete mm -hmm. in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, and like I said, particularly with KFTC support and lots of really, uh, lots of folks who really came on board and resonated with the message, um, we actually had an incredibly strong showing, especially if you factor in, you know, the, the amount we paid per vote. Like for, for a campaign that only raised fifty or $60,000. Right we actually had a very notable impact. And so that was, um, I was really glad to see that when the smoke settled, lots of people, lots of people were, had taken the message very seriously and were really interested in like, okay, so how can we, lots of, lots of other folks outside of progressive circles, you know, tugging on my sleeve and asking, okay, so how can we talk to the progressive base? How can we like engage, you know, these circles? How can we get some of the, how can we get some of that magic? And it's like, well, good. That's our leverage. Right. You know, that's, uh, that all feels really exciting. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next four years. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next two. Uh, because next year, 2017, is, a, is politically speaking, it's a dead zone. There's no, mm -hmm. nobody's running for anything, which is um, actually a great time to kind of sit back, reassess, <coughs> build a little organization, mm -hmm. you know, actually move forward with like a significant game plan next time. There's lots of, there's lots of room for all of these organizations to kind of come together around around one table and I'm looking forward to, to trying to spend a lot of time over the next year or so um, kind of helping to, 
to stitch that together so that we can really find our voice and really let it be strong and have a significant impact, not just on the people we elect, but on the policies that get discussed and pushed within the Commonwealth. Thanks again to Salas Wilder and everyone at the New Kentucky Project doing some very cool things across the state. You can check them out online at newkentuckyproject.com. That about wraps up our show today, but first we'll hear from Maria Stark with some chapter updates from the Central Kentucky chapter of KFTC. By the way, speaking of Maria Stark, she's one of the producers for this show, as you may recall. But the three of us, Macy, Maria, and myself, have teamed up with KFTC to raise some cash for our fall campaign, which you'll hear about in a minute. But if you'd like to show your support for Power to the People Radio, you can donate to KFTC in honor of this show. Just go to powerbuilders.causevox.com. There you'll find our page along with everyone else raising money for KFTC this fall. Anyways, here's Maria. Next Wednesday, December 7th, listeners are invited to join us at Embrace Church from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. for a workshop on how to keep your utilities low this winter. The workshop will be presented in both English and Spanish, and participants will receive a complimentary weatherization kit to make their home more energy efficient. The workshop is open to renters and homeowners alike. Dinner and childcare for ages four and up will also be provided. Registration is encouraged by emailing us at bethhoward at kftc.org or by calling us at 859-266-1572. That's 859-266-1572. Thanks to Bluegrass Green Source, Kentucky State University, and House Smart Kentucky for partnering with us. On Thursday, December 15th at 7 p.m., the Central Kentucky Chapter of KFTC will host a special holiday edition of our monthly gathering at the Episcopal Mission House at the corner of Fourth and MLK. We'll have holiday-themed karaoke that will be fun for all ages. Given the new political landscape in Kentucky and the country, we're also ready to sharpen our skills in resisting legislation, rhetoric, and actions that are harmful to many Kentuckians. We will be hosting a resistance training at our January 19th chapter meeting on how we can push back, stand up, and speak out together. As usual, our chapter meeting will take place on the third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. at the Episcopal Mission House. Want to help us become 11,000 members strong? You can still join us during our fall membership campaign by visiting kftc.org join. Help us build the people power we need to challenge injustice in our commonwealth. As always, you can keep up with us by following Central Kentucky Chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth on Facebook or Twitter. And you can also listen to past KFTC episodes on SoundCloud at Power to the People Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Power to the People on Lexington Community Radio, WLXU LPFM. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. for new episodes from local social justice organizations. KFTC will be back with another new episode of Power to the People on January 3rd. 